having that sort of hunter-gatherer sort of uh, anchor, uh, traditional lifestyle anchor, that, that, that's the activity level that your body should be able to handle. If you're consistently pushing beyond that, right, like far beyond that by running, you know, instead of 12,000 steps a day, you're getting 25,000 steps a day and you're running instead of walking and, you know, well, yeah, the, your body might respond poorly to that. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high performance mind, body and lifestyle. Hi friends, it is good to be back. I have just had an absolutely fantastic, magical week with my family in Tenerife. I feel very fortunate to have got away despite all of the testing that we had to do. Um, and different ones for, for everyone who was different ages. It was all quite complicated. We did manage to get away and have a beautiful time. But you may be thinking, if you haven't got away, do you need to worry about vitamin D? And this is interesting, isn't it? Because I checked my vitamin D before I went away. And for the first time in a very long time, we hadn't been away to the sunshine for 12 months. In fact, it was literally a few days over 12 months from our last trip to Croatia last summer. And we hadn't, I think I can probably remember two occasions, maybe three occasions where I actually dropped some vitamin D under my tongue and under my children's tongue um, because we spend a decent amount of time outside. We have dogs, the kids are really active, play a lot of sport. And so it's a bit of an experiment really to see, are we going to be replete? And I had my vitamin D tested before going. Um, and what we want to see is that you, for health optimization, have at least uh, 50 nanograms per milliliter and hopefully nudging up towards 80 or even for those who are more athletic and maybe place a bit more pressure on their immune system up towards 100. And mine was a nice 86. So I'm not saying this to show off. I'm saying this to just to say that um, this really supports getting outside. Obviously, it's an N plus one with me. Um, but I have looked at some research that suggests as long as you do spend a decent amount of time outside between sort of March and September, um, you should be able to get enough vitamin D. So hopefully, despite the, the sort of poorer summer that we've had, if you've been listening to my podcasts and my Facebook lives, then you will have been spending some time outside if you didn't have the chance to actually get away. Um, and I would say it is really important. One other thing that is worth checking, obviously, is your vitamin D receptor gene. Um, some people have impaired SNPs, depending on what their ancestry is. Um, and mine, obviously, uh, well, mine, not obviously, but mine do operate pretty well at genetic level. So some people may need to top up. And for most people who do spend a lot of time inside, uh, they absolutely do need to supplement between sort of October and March time. But I feel refreshed from a lovely, lovely holiday. And I'm excited today because we're going to be diving even deeper. It's the second episode on fat loss and metabolism. But we're actually going to be looking at what we can learn from ancestors and hunter-gatherers. Um, there are some remaining hunter-gatherer tribes and specifically the Hadza uh, men and women who actually seem to between five and 10 times more physical activity every day than most women and men in the USA or Europe. But you're going to be learning about how our bodies tend to burn around the same amount of calories regardless, which is an interesting uh, topic of conversation. But before we dive into that, I do want to tell you about my fearless fat loss challenge, which I am so excited. It is kicking off on the 13th of September. And if you've been trying multiple different diets and you haven't had success, do not despair. You do not have to go to war with your body to lose weight. You definitely don't need to hate your body to love it. In fact, you need to love your body. And that's why this is a fearless fat loss challenge, because we're going to be diving deep into mindset and how you can really create that transformation without fear of losing yourself, without fear that what you're doing won't work, because this is scientifically proven to work. And if you are up for it, we're going to spend six weeks together where I will coach you on how to become fearless and how to create 
the very best version of you. So this challenge is for you if you want to take back control of your mindset, your body, your energy levels and your health. You've maybe tried other ways to lose weight, including things like fad diets and trends, but they haven't worked. And you're now ready to change the way you think about your body. And you're ready to learn how to optimize your life and health for the best possible outcomes. So I will make sure it has a 30 day money back guarantee. So I will be sure to make sure that if you follow what I say, you will absolutely be losing weight on this. And you'll also be giving your mindset a huge upgrade. So if you'd like to spend six weeks with me and a lovely special community of other people who are doing the same thing, then just head over to AngelaFosterAcademy.com forward slash fearless hyphen fat hyphen loss. You will see on there that there are some incredible prizes that I'm going to be giving away to the runners up and also to the grand prize winner. So introduces a bit of healthy competition, but I think it also makes it much more fun. So just head over to AngelaFosterAcademy.com forward slash fearless hyphen fat hyphen loss to enroll and join me on the 30th, 13th, sorry, 13th of September. I'm so excited. So now let me introduce you to today's guest because this is exciting. We're going to be learning um, about how calories work. We've traditionally been told that the more we move, the more calories we will be, but we will be burning. But Today's guest, Dr. Herman Ponser, who is an evolutionary biologist, is going to explain to us why this way of thinking is wrong. And he researches how our deep past has shaped the way that our bodies work. And over the past 20 years, he's conducted groundbreaking research across a range of settings, including living with the Hadza hunter-gatherers in northern Tanzania. And they the Hadzas are actually one of the last hunter-gatherer tribes in the world. And they can give us some unique insights into the way we used to live. He also has a brilliant book with fun stories for a science book. It's really fun right from the off called Burn, The Misunderstood Science of Metabolism. And in there, he reveals his findings that despite the fact that these Hadza men and women get between five and 10 times more physical activity every day than most of us in Europe or the USA, their total expenditure, um, i.e. the amount of calories they burn, remains around the same. And as you will hear today, it um, exercise absolutely is a magic pill for longevity. It affects every cell in your body. So we are 100% not telling you not to exercise. In fact, I think if there was a pill for exercise, you would just be to everybody would be taking it because it's so extraordinary. But when you do exercise, you have lower levels of inflammation, you cope with stress better. So you're not actually spending calories on that. But I don't want to spoil this episode because it's really, really interesting. It's a whole bunch of new insights for you. So without further delay, let me introduce you to Dr. Herman Ponser. So I'm very thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Herman Ponser. It is wonderful to have you here. I'm absolutely fascinated by your research, so I can't wait to dive into that today. Welcome to the show. Thanks, great to be on. Yeah, it's exciting. So I guess to kick off, um, when we look at metabolism, this is, this is the thing that's so interesting to me, is from your research, what you found is it doesn't seem to matter how much exercise you're doing it isn't going to dramatically affect the number of calories you burn. Is that a fair place to start? Yeah, that's that's the big surprising result. You could have some sort of marginal changes around the edges, but it doesn't have a big impact on the calories you burn every day like, like we're usually told. Yeah, and it was interesting to me because when I was looking in your book, um, a great book, is you were talking about how the average American woman will burn around I think a nine-year-old burns around 2,000 calories, a woman yeah. burns around 2,400, and then a man, 3,000. And mm -hmm. I see, because I see differences in that. So one of the things I've been doing is comparing and contrasting the aura ring with the whoop strap for yeah. kind of biohacking my sleep more than anything else. But whoop comes up with a calorie burn. And it is uh, quite brutal in terms of <laughs> restricting my calories, I think, when mm. I have a less active day. Yeah. Um, and I'm just wondering how accurate we think these things are. So, well, so let's start with the good news. The good news is that um, you know, nothing about the research I've done or anybody's done suggests that you, you don't have sort of bigger and smaller days, right? Day-to-day -day fluctuations are real, right? So if you are really physically active today, 
you'll burn more calories than if you have a rest day tomorrow. That, that's, that's true. What we're talking about when we talk about how exercise fits into your total energy budget, we're talking about sort of, think about it as sort of a week-long averages of that, that kind of time horizon for energy expenditure. Sort of, it kind of keeps you higher or lower depending on, on how you're, um, okay, it kind of keeps you within a, a sort of narrow range on that, on that kind of time frame. Um, and so the ring you're wearing or the other Fitbit kind of gadgets, um, they are tracking activity. And they're, they're correct in the sense that if you're more active today, you probably burn more calories than if you were more sedentary tomorrow, right? So that day-to-day thing is real. What they're wrong about is um, how your body adjusts to that activity. So they have the view, they, the, the, the tech in those gadgets follows a really simple rule. It knows something about you, and maybe if you if you've been able to in, you know put this into in the user interface, how much you weigh, and, and if you're male or female. So it kind of has a baseline number of calories you're going to burn, and then it adds what it thinks is your activity expenditure onto that. And there's no interaction between the two. There's no interaction between how active you are physically in your exercise world and your resting energy expenditure and all the other stuff your body does. And that's where it gets it wrong because there are there are these interactions. Your body does adjust how it deals with the non-exercise parts of your energy expenditure, depending on how active you are in your sort of exercise life. Yes. And that was really interesting to me because I think there's so many different factors there that then could play a part that would interest me as someone who looks at health optimization and longevity, right? Because let's say, for example, I'm exercising and I go out for a very long run one day. Um, And so more calories are going to be apportioned towards the energy expenditure for that run. Mm-hmm. If that is then what you're talking about, when you say the, the energy at rest, if you like, the BMR, which is kind of servicing all of my body's organs and looking after me and doing the cellular renewal and everything else, right? Mm-hmm. Does that then mean that some of that gets down-regulated if you overexercise, unless you bring more calories in? Or how does that, how does that play between the two? Yeah. So in principle, you've got to, that, that's all correct. However, um, the, the degree matters. So for most of us who aren't active enough, mm-hmm. right, when we get in a new exercise program and it's, it's, and our body adjusts to that new exercise program. So it's not going to happen tomorrow and it doesn't happen on a day-to-day scale. This is your body adjusts over a couple of months to your new exercise program. What you would notice is in this, we know this because if we compare people who exercise to people who don't, what we'll notice is the people who exercise have less inflammation. They have less stress reactivity, right? So when something stressful happens to them, you react to it, but your heart rate comes back down faster. Your cortisol levels come back down faster to baseline. Um, Reproductive hormones are regulated in a healthier range. They're not sky high like they can be in really sedentary people. Um, And so those are the adjustments your body's making to that resting energy expenditure part of your energy budget. And... So it is taking energy away from those things, but those are healthy changes, right? Mm. Um, those are important, healthy changes. And they're, they're part of the reason exercise is so good for you. Uh, if you go too far, right? If you're at the sort of Olympic level of athletic training, then yeah, then you can push it too far and you take energy away from all the critical things, right? You sort of, your body has, has taken, has stopped doing the non-essential stuff. And now you're sort of, cutting into the essentials, right? Now you don't have enough immune response to respond to a cold or enough energy to sort of repair your body overnight while you sleep. Um, and that's how you get into things like overtraining syndrome, uh, this thing called REDS, uh, with relative energy deficiency syndrome. Um, and so, yeah, so what you're talking about is, you know, the, you, the way that I, I hear you talking about it is, can these be a bad thing? And, and it could be to the extreme. But for most of us, it's a really good thing that energy is taken away from those other tasks. Yeah, because we're, we're already, well, we're not doing enough. And so when we start yeah. to exercise, then we're down, we're lowering things like inflammation, as you say. Yeah. Um, and certainly I can notice a huge difference in, like I would say, there are a few forms of exercise for me that make the biggest move the needle the most in terms of mood and that ability to handle stress, as you say. Mm-hmm. And one is early morning movement, but mm. also just overall activity across the day. So I think I saw some research that if you walk less than 5,000 steps a day, you're more vulnerable to things like depression and anxiety, mm. um, which is quite interesting. And, and certainly for me, I'm much happier if I'm 12, 15,000 plus steps a day 
than if it's below. If I kind of have a very sedentary day and I hit eight, 9,000, I can really feel the difference. But maybe that's because my body is used to higher levels. I'm not sure. Yeah, well, I mean, I think what you're getting at is exactly right, that exercise has these effects throughout your body, right? And so, um, you know, my research is trying to push away from this idea that exercise is just about the calories you burn or just about the muscle you build. Um, building muscle is a good thing. Everybody's all for that. Uh, but, you know, to think about exercise just as sort of this mechanical, um, you know, the mechanical benefit, I think, misses the point, right? Exercise gets everywhere because there are these literally hundreds of signaling molecules that get into your bloodstream and talk to all parts of your body when you exercise. Some of them seem to be affecting the way your other systems spend energy, right? Which is my, my work is how other systems are responding energetically. But those same signaling molecules, um, are going to be affecting your brain and mood. They're going to affect how hungry you feel and how full you feel when you eat. Uh, they are going to affect so many things. So, you know, um, so I love it. And I, I think you're, you're dead on with that. And um, yeah, the larger point that when people exercise, you know, we're, we're sold again, this idea that exercise is all about the bikini body and the, and the calories burned. And I think that's, that's not actually the way we should think about it because that's not really what exercise is doing as much as it's doing all the other stuff that's so critical and important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If you could put it in a pill, everyone would yeah. take it, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Because it's so profound, the impact on the body. Yeah. And what about then when we look at, for example, Michael Phelps? Mm. He, and I think you make the point in the book that, that swimming actually it burns more calories, right? If you're going to swim a mile, it's going to burn more calories oh, than if you yeah. run or walk a mile, obviously, yeah, right? That's right? Yeah. Um, but if we look at someone like him, he's uh, reported to have eaten something like 9,000 calories a day, yeah. right? And didn't get yeah. fat. So the activity level is playing a part there because otherwise yeah. he wouldn't be able to eat 9,000, right? Yeah, well, yeah, that's a funny one that I, I actually dug down on, on in, the, in the book because it is just, you know, it's kind of mind-blowing to think that anyone, a human, could eat 9,000. or I've mm. even seen people say 12,000 calories a day for him, which is just obscene. Um, so first of all, it turns out the Michael Phelps enigma, there's a, a fun story there because it helps us understand all this, this system, I think, in a, in a nice example uh, that illustrates it well. First of all, he's lying. Or the people around him are lying because it's never been measured. The, the best estimates are that it's more like seven or eight thousand calories a day, which is still tons. That's still so much, hmm. but it's not nine or twelve or whatever. Um, the so there, there's that. So why do people boast about how many calories they consume? That's an interesting psychological question. Um, but the, the met metabolic piece of it is that he, um, like any other athlete can push that ceiling, how, how hard they push their body, you can do blocks of activity that go above the sort of typical metabolic ceiling, the ceiling that we all live under, right? The sort of energy expenditure cap that my work says there seems to be at, you know, at play for most of us during our normal daily lives. You can go above that cap uh, for a short amount of time. So you can burn you know, 10,000 calories in a Ironman triathlon, or you can burn, you know, six or 8,000 calories a day for a month in the Tour de France, or you can, we, we measure people who ran from Los Angeles to Washington, DC over five months. They're in a marathon a day, right? Across North America. And they burn something like 4,500 calories a day for five months. So you can do these big blocks of activity that are way above the normal cap that we all live under. But, um, but even those, those sort of pushes above the, the, the usual cap, they also follow a very strict rule that our bodies are, are following. And it, it's, it's sort of analogous to um, sprinting versus marathon running. You can push your body very high for a day, 10,000, 15,000 calories. You can push your body pretty high for a month, Tour de France. You can push your body not quite that high for five months if you run across North America. And there seems to be a really nice relationship between how long you have to keep it up and how high you can push yourself. And so somebody like Michael Phelps in a training block, where right, those data, those those uh, th those boasts of energy uh, intake come from when he's training. Well, that's probably a maybe it's a three or four month block. And so for that block, I bet you he is absolutely um, above the sort of normal cap that we all live under. But I think if we followed Michael Phelps for long enough, we've started trying to do this with ultra marathon athletes 
here in our own research in our lab, if you follow them for long enough and you kind of ask, well, what's the really long-term expenditures that they're doing over a year, over two years? Those are much more human, <laughs> much more human level expenditures because everybody has to come down um, and sort of play by the same rules, right? Mm. And everyone, well, and also the harder you train, the harder you have to recover, right? Well, that's so right. And, and I think that yeah. And, you know, and if you're pushing too hard, so I think there's some, some value, some sort of take-home value for people who are really pushing it. Um, if you have listeners or anybody who's, you know, are the ultra marathon runners getting, you know, tons of mileage a week running or biking or whatever, that sort of um, sliding scale where you can do thousands of calories for a couple of days, but you can't do it for a week and you can't do it for a month and you can't do it, right? So in, if you want to do a month, you've got to do less. If you want to do two months, you've got to do less than that. That sort of sliding scale, I think, is a useful thing to think about because what it means is your training program might go great. And it might go great for and your body can do it forever, right? You mm -hmm. might hit that wall in two months or three months and you think, well, but I've been doing this. I don't understand. I've been doing this successfully, but there are limits to what you can maintain forever. Yeah, for sure. And also what's really interesting as well, I think when you look at, and I'm curious what you think about women, but when you look at women triathletes mm. who have been doing it for a sustained amount of time, I think it affects their female sex hormones. It affects cortisol balance in such a way that what you see is actually there. Often they'll be saying, how can I lose body fat? Why is it that, you know, I'm doing such a high training volume and I'm eating so many calories to support that volume of training, but now I yeah. can't lose the weight and I've got abdominal fat and it's changing that whole thing. And I was curious because when you were studying the tribes, you were looking at how the men would go out and do a lot of the hunting and the women were digging for the tubers and they were picking the berries and things. Mm -hmm. How much in terms of our own longevity do you think we need to pay attention to that and the differences between male and female and how much women really push themselves on a sustained basis? Yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, right. So that's work I, I was able to do. Uh, I'm, you know, I'm an anthropologist by training. So a lot of my foray uh, entree into this whole world was um, working with a hunting and gathering group called the Hadza in northern Tanzania. And it's this traditional tribe where men hunt and women gather. Um, and, you know, it is it is sort of very, in many ways, that, that culture that were all humans for millions of years, right? But they've, they've held on to those cultural bits, which is, makes them so valuable um, to work with as an anthropologist. And, um, right, and, and we measured energy expenditures there. And we didn't see sex differences in the calories burned, right? But we do see differences in that group, like we would anywhere in the world. Women... Um, tend to hold more body fat percentage, men tend to hold less. Um, even though they're really physically active, so women are getting something like 12,000 steps a day, uh, you know, often with a kid on their back or carrying tubers back home. I mean, it's, it's hard work. They're, they're doing tons of hard work and they're still, they don't have any fertility issues, right? I mean, they, they have big families, so that's that part of their physiology is acting completely fine and normally. Um, so I think what they have to tell us is that is much more, that's much closer to what sort of a, a normal human physiology is, right? Those are, those are the cultures, those are the lifestyles in which all humans lived for millions of years. So that's, that's kind of what our body's built to do. So we're, we're built to be able to, to take a, a lot of activity. We're built, you know, hunting and gathering, which is what all humans were doing a few generations ago, is a really physically demanding lifestyle. And if produce and have healthy reproductive physiology, then that, that lifestyle never would have worked, right? I mean, that's all species mm -hmm. have to be able to reproduce. So what does it mean when women today in an industrialized society are pushing their bodies and trying to find out what amount of exercise is healthy for them um, and how their bodies respond? I think if having that sort of hunter-gatherer sort of uh, anchor uh, traditional lifestyle anchor that, that that's the activity level that your body should be able to handle if you're consistently pushing beyond that right like far beyond that by running you know instead of 12,000 steps a day you're getting 25,000 steps a day and you're running instead of walking and you know well yeah the, your body might respond poorly to that and women are going to be more sensitive in some ways we think maybe than men because a woman's physiology you know if the reproductive system should be really sensitive to energy balance because pregnancy, pregnancy costs 70,000 kilocalories, right? And then nursing costs more. Um, 
it's just a you know your your reproductive physiology is tuned to to know that that cost is coming if you if you uh, have a baby, and so you know it's a women's physiology might be more sensitive to energy balance and respond in ways that are a bit more dramatic perhaps than men's will. I mean I, this is a whole area that that has been looked at with women's triad, you know, female athlete triad and overtraining syndrome. Um, we shouldn't be surprised though, that we do see sex differences in how these work be, just because of that, it's because of the different sort of evolved uh, costs of reproduction, which are higher for women. Yeah, which are higher. And it's interesting as well, when you talk about like the, the calories that are burned, because fat itself isn't particularly metabolically demanding in terms of sustaining it. But obviously, fat-free mass, so muscle, bone, your organs are. Then presumably, the more you are able to gain and maintain muscle mass, and I don't, I don't mean bodybuilding style, but if yeah. you are regularly strength training, and that's certainly what I found myself and the clients I work with, is that strength training and walking, in my view, need to take priority. And then we need to sprint occasionally, right? And just be able to exercise that, which is kind of high intensity work. What I see people doing too much of is this sort of, it's deemed hit, but it isn't hit. It's not high intensity. Mm. It's just vigorous activity, which is kind of these long runs or these multiple hit classes that you can do online or in gyms that are actually vigorous activity that seem to kind of drive excess inflammation, excess cortisol and make the weight loss kind of induce weight loss resistance is what I see mm. whereas actually mm -hmm. when I get people doing low intensity steady straight uh, lots of like walking and things like that particularly in a fasted state coupled with a few times a week strength training that's where the magic seems to happen in terms of metabolism mm. but um, I guess in these tribes they're getting that strength from the digging the carrying the looking after their young as opposed to specifically trying to train the muscles yeah, I mean, I think if you asked any of the men and women that I work with in Tanzania or other places around the globe in traditional groups, you know, what do you guys do for exercise? Uh, they would laugh at you. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the idea that you would ever exercise just for fun. I mean, they love what they love their lives. That's why they hold on to those cultures, right? They know about the outside world, but they love what they do. They love hunting and gathering. So that's why they hold on to those the, the, that way of life. Um, so it isn't like it's a chore for them to go out walking and hunting and gathering, but uh, but the idea that you would just do it just to burn calories or just, I mean, that's silly, right? That's a very Western or industrialized world thing mm -hmm. that we've gotten so artificially lazy yeah. that now we have to invent ways to, to exercise. I mean, that, that's kind of they would yeah, love in the same it. way that, that it's, and, you know, in the same way that we have to be worried about eating too much, mm -hmm. right? I mean, that's never been an issue. Um, but now it is absolutely. So, you know, the, the, we've, we've built these artificial zoos for ourselves to live in and we've got to be careful about how we design them, I suppose, to, to be as, as healthy as we can be. Yeah, for sure. I mean, do you see them at all? Will they do anything like that's body weight based? Would they, a bit like the military would train, would they do any push-ups? Would they climb? Would they pull themselves up on things or is that just happening naturally anyway? It's all completely naturally happening. They would never go out of their way just to do it, to train it. Um, but men climb trees to get honey. So they, uh, you know, about 20% of their calories per day, well, 50, yeah, let's say 10 to 20% of their calories on any given week is wild honey, right? Uh, which is just sugar and water. It's something that's a, a different uh, thing to think about as their diet. But anyway, so they eat a lot of honey and a lot of traditional groups do. And the, the bees there, they make their hives in the hollows of limbs and you know, other parts up, up high in trees. And so men will climb up into trees, you know, so you're climbing to do that. Uh, they'll chop into the limbs to get, you know, to expose the hives. And so that's, you know, I've, I've used their, their axes. That's, that's hard work. Um, you know, but there's not a lot of like serious power kind of, uh, of activity that you see. You know, there's no... They're never lifting, other than climbing, they're not like lifting body weight kind of things regularly. Oh, actually, one, one fun thing, they're, the bows they make, so they make their own bow and arrow. Uh, their bows are strung so strongly that um, every time they pull a bow, it's, it's almost like a one-arm pull-up. It's almost that, strong, that, that, oh, wow. that powerful of a pull. So they're really strong guys, but they never do any, any lifting. The women are also strong, very strong, but they also never do any like, power sort of stuff. I mean, digging in rocky soil with a stick, that's not easy, right? Yeah. But that's sort of more like repetitive, you know, 
motion. It's not like a power lift kind of thing. Hmm. Interesting. And what have you found? Because I know in terms of their gut health, I think you're saying that there's about 70% of them have parasites. Um, mm. How are their immune systems and how long do they do they seem to live in that environment? Yeah. So, um, right. So lots of infectious, infectious disease burden from bacteria and parasites and, and everything else. And they don't really have access to medicine. So, um, you know, it's, it's a, it's a couple of days walk to the clinic. Um, and that's kind of hit and miss as well, how that'll go. So typically they just tough it out when they get an infection. Um, and because of that, you know, just like in a lot of parts of the world, uh, that don't have access to good medicine, they have a lot of, of childhood death, sadly, a lot of child mortality, right? Um, so I forget the number off the top of my head, but it's something like 30% or more uh, kids will die before their 15th birthday. Wow. Um, maybe, I think, that, I think that's about right. Don't quote wow. me, but it's something, it's, 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 a, it's shockingly high number. Mm. And because of that, if you ask, what's the average age of death for a Hadza man or woman? The number is really low because if you, you know, have you ever calculated an average before, if you go back to high school or whatever, you know, if you put a lot of the zeros and ones in that average that you're, that, that pool that you're averaging, the number comes way down. So because there's so much childhood mortality, the age life expectancy, quote unquote, that single number is only in the thirties or something like that, uh, 35 or something. But that's actually kind of artificially low because there's two periods where you're really at risk of dying from infectious disease, childhood before your immune system is strong and you're big enough to, to get through an infection. Um, and then old age, 60s, 70s, 80s, when you know your body starts to slow down and just like here in the, in the, in, in the industrialized world, you just respond less well to you know, a pneumonia or something like that. Um, so anyway, if you can get through childhood into your teens, you're very likely to live into your 60s or 70s, even, even 80s occasionally in the Hadza. So we do see old age there and we see a really great model for it because the men and women are really physically active and, and, you know, and, and, and vital, uh, and sharp as far as I can tell, um, you know, in, into their very later ages. And then they kind of, you know, well, eventually they'll get a pneumonia or something like that, that they can't handle. And sadly they'll die of infection at old age. That, that's typically, that's the typical run for a Hadza man or woman. So very similar then to the blue zones, not really any prevalence of chronic diseases. It tends to be, and they're active into old age. There's also, I think you were, you talk about as well, that there's a real sense of community and sharing. And we were meant, right, as humans to share, um, yeah. and to share food and kind of socialize together. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's hunting and gathering, right? It's not, it's not hunting or gathering. Yeah. Um, and I think, you know, if I could say, if I get just a one corrective to the modern paleo take on diets, this idea that it was all hunting all the time and we didn't eat plants, um, that, that doesn't actually wash with the data that we have on, on any of these groups. But more to that, it's the entire point of hunting and gathering is that you have the advantages of both a carnivore and a plant eater, right? You take the, the good things in, about both of the, those strategies that you know animals across the globe tend to either do one or the other. You take the advantages of both and you combine them. And that's why there's 10 billion people on the planet and we are in every eco zone everywhere. And we're such the dominant species is because hunting and gathering was, it, it, and it is just a fantastic strategy. Um, it's why we're so successful. But it's the and, right? It's not the hunting. Plenty of animals hunt. They didn't take over the world. It's not the gathering. Plenty of animals gather. They didn't take over mm. the world. Uh, it's, it's the and. It's the fact that we do it together. So that sharing the, um, you know, the, the sort of mixed portfolio kind of approach to, to getting your food, um, that's what it's all about. That's why humans are so unstoppable. Yeah. And it's interesting as well, because I guess, I don't know, if you've done analysis on when you look at their diet, like you mentioned there, 20% of their calories come from sugar, yeah. uh, like in form of honey, right? Natural yeah. sugar. Yeah. Um, by the time you've factored in the berries, the tubers, and then they've had some meat, which obviously contains some fat. Do you have an idea of what percentage of each macronutrient they're eating? Yeah. In fact, we just did a, a big analysis of this uh, with my colleague, Brian Wood, who spent more time with the Hadza in the past 
you know, 20 years that he's probably spent in his own home. Um, he, I, we always collaborate together whenever I'm over there with the Hadza, he's, I'm always there with him. He's a really a Hadza expert, Brian Wood. Um, anyway, we just did this paper in annual review of nutrition. I'm going to pull it up for you right now. I'll just have cool. a quick look. So yeah, we have Hadza macronutrients. So estimated protein intake is about somewhere between 60 to 240 grams a day, which is roughly 11 to 43% of total energy intake. It's total fat is between 13 to 36% of energy. And carbohydrate is anywhere from 20 to 71% of energy. But long-term averages, if you were just to take, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, the, you know, total rough averages across the entire uh, year, it's something like 60, yeah, it's about 20% protein 20 something 24 2 or 4% fat and about 60 to 65% carbohydrate it's really variable is the thing it mm -hmm. is you know it changes day to day and month to month but 60 some percent carbohydrate 20 some percent fat 20 some percent protein that's interesting fat. isn't it because yeah. actually that's not that dissimilar to the government's food pyramid on carbohydrate that's it's just right. that we're moving all wrong right and we're just yeah. stressed and inside and yeah and yeah. not moving around and isn't it that's really interesting yeah absolutely uh I, I um yeah when the usda on this side of the of the pacific came out with uh you know their recent recommended guidelines i ran it against the hadza intakes and like you say it's really not that different i mean the big things are they might be getting a bit more protein. We know that protein can help you feel full on less. So I think that's something to keep in mind. Um, they're getting more fiber for sure. They're probably getting 60 or 80 grams of fiber a day, which is mm -hmm. a way more than we ever get in the, in the U.S. In fact, you know, that's what... Way more, food, right? Because I yeah. think the guidelines are like, try and eat something like 28 grams or something of yeah. fiber, which is low. Yeah, yeah, they, they get a lot more. Um, and fiber helps you feel full, and it's also good for your microbiome and good for gut health. So there's all sorts of benefits there that you might think about. Um, but yeah, this idea that hunter-gatherers never eat any carbohydrates, I mean, it's a laugh. You know, anybody who works with them, uh, not just the Hadza, but anywhere around the globe, I mean, it's, it's, it's a joke to think that hunter-gatherer diets are keto or, or meat-based or something like that. I mean, and if those diets work for you at home, you're listening, that nobody's happier for you than I am. But the idea that those are paleo diets in any real sense is, is, is a joke. Yeah. Yeah, that confirms it. Um, yeah. Interesting. And so when you, were, when you were there, I guess, I'm sure there's things you take back home with you. Yeah. I always like to integrate parts of a trip into my life, which I want to ask you about in, the mo in a moment. But when you're there... What do you notice the most? Like, were there any kind of changes in your circadian rhythm, just kind of rising with the sun? Like, what were the biggest things you noticed when you were there? Yeah, I mean, in your own body, you notice, yeah, you notice that you're just totally tuned into the, you know, the, the sun. You know, you're up with the sun. Um, you have dinner and go to bed in the evening and, and you sort of on the same pattern again and again. Uh, you are you notice it's hot because <laughs> it's on the equator and it's so hot um but it's you know you, you also notice that your body does a pretty good job keeping yourself cool if you you know get up and move your, your temptation is to just sit because it's so hot but actually if you get moving a little bit nothing crazy but just walking which is what they spend their days doing of course you get that air moving over your body and actually that feels better and so you kind of get into this rhythm of being active and, and kind of moving just to kind of help keep yourself going. Um, you know, it's, it's like a long camping trip when we go, it might be a couple of weeks, it might be a couple of months, um, but it's, it's basically a camping trip. And so, you know, anybody who's, who's had those sort of longish camping trips when you're up with the sun and, and it, it, you know, you've, you've done this too, you've gotten into these rhythms as well. And it's a really nice way to, to live, I think. Um, you know, you don't bring out any sugary beverages, so you're just drinking water and, and eating kind of camping food. And yeah, it just feels very, just feels very, uh, I don't know what the word is, in tune, you know, in tune, tune. with your body. In, in alignment, with yeah. Happening. Yeah, yeah. But what's interesting about them is where they live near the equator, 
it's a regular kind of presumably sort of six to six uh, yeah. sunrise to sunset. Because one of the things I find difficult here in the UK is that we have such extremes. So, for example, you know, in mid-June, it's not going to get dark until sort of 10 p.m., 10.30. But then mm. by the time you get to November, it's dark by 4 p.m. Yeah. So if you were to try and rise and, and go to bed with the sun, you'd be so, you wouldn't get much work done in winter. I'll put it that way, right? Yeah. <laughs> you'd be mostly hibernating. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, I'll say this, they don't go to bed when it gets dark, right? They are up. What's one thing we've actually measured how much they sleep and they, they don't sleep any more than the typical American does. They sleep a little bit less than eight hours a day on average at, at eight hours a night, but they don't take naps in the day or anything like that. So it's you know, eight hours of sleep a, a day. Um, and we kind of thought they might sleep more because of course there's no lights or TV or even radio on in the evenings. But you, you know, when we are there, so they have, you know, they live in sort of camps uh, of grass houses and in a camp might have somewhere between five and maybe a dozen grass houses, depending on the size of the camp. Families all sort of there. And, and um, they, we, we try to put our tents in our, our camp nearby, but not, you know, we don't want to be in the middle of their business any more than we already are. So we're off to the side. So typically by dinner time or so, we're kind of recuperating and getting ready for the next day and, and having our dinner and, and settling down. So, and you can hear people having conversations and laughing and having a good time there. And, you know, so you go to bed and, and sometimes even, you know, you wake up in the middle of the night, you can hear people still chattering on in their camp. Mm. Um, so it shouldn't have been a surprise that they don't sleep more than we do because it isn't like they go to bed right at six when it gets dark. Mm. Um, so I think in the, you know, in the UK or in, you know, anywhere that's got uh, winter time, you know, evening sets at four or five, staying awake into the dark, that's not so strange. Um, I think the fact that we don't wake up with the sun and, and, and keep the same rhythm. So in other words, I don't think that they sleep more. They don't sleep more, but they, that rhythm never changes. It's always consistent. And I think that's a big thing. They're not, you know, mm -hmm. pushing an all-nighter for a deadline or, you know, getting jet lag from traveling to different time zones and that kind of stuff. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Which takes a huge toll on yeah. your body. I know from my own experience, when I was practicing as a lawyer in London, as a mm. corporate lawyer, and we would just regularly push through the night, I think... Yeah. You know, you can get away with it in your 20s to a degree, but I was pretty burnt out by the time I had my children. Yeah. It's, uh, yeah, yeah that, but that just pushing the envelope at both ends of the day. Yeah. Um, and what about when you come home? Like, what have you drawn from in terms of your own health optimization plan for you and for your family? Are there bits that you bring back and think we want to kind of mimic parts of this more sort of ancestral lifestyle? Yeah. Um you know, I've always liked to move. I've always liked exercise and getting outside, especially. So I won't say, I'm not going to tell you that, you know, I had this aha moment where I should eat healthy and, and be active because I've always, you know, that's always been something I've tried to do, but it's definitely reinforced that for me and reinforced that I really need to make it a priority, right? I think it's easy, especially you get into your middle age and work requirements, you know, work, work, uh, obligations, kind of ratchet up and, you know, you get little kids running around and um, it's easy to say, okay, well, I'm, you know, I'm working now and I'm not, I, I don't have the time to exercise like I did when I was in my twenties, hmm. you know, or whatever. And so you kind of shift your lifestyle. Um, I, I've pushed, tried to push back against that in my own life and say, no, I'm going to make time. I'm, I'm going to treat this as seriously as I would treat any obligation is to make sure I'm getting outside and exercise. Um, and the other thing is, you know, I think that they would, I've never, I've never asked, uh, you know, for, for sort of any kind of personal um, therapy from any of my Hadza friends about my life. I never, <laughs> but I think if I'd asked them, they would say, why do you care so much about your career? What do you, I mean, you know, you've got, <laughs> you've got your friends and your family and you've got a nice place to live and, and, you know, good food and what, what's, what's the problem, you know, why the stress? Yeah. Uh, and that's, you know, uh, a lot of us, um, don't have the choice and we are in jobs that are just inherently stressful and we've got bosses that are crap and we've got, you know, but, um, so if that's you, I'm very sorry, but there are those of us who actually 
are better off than we think. And, but we have this constant pressure in our own minds about, oh, we, we should be working 50 hours, 60 hours a week. And we, you know, and, and, and I think we kind of load ourselves up psychologically with what we're supposed to be doing um, rather than being more in tune with family and friends and the things that will actually make us happier and keep us grounded long term. Mm. You know? um, and I, you know, I, I get as excited and as focused on a big work project as the next person. I love my job. So, you know, I say this and, and it's Friday here and maybe I'll spend Friday night pounding out a paper that I love, you know, so there are parts of that, you know, it isn't, I'm not trying to put myself up as a model or anything like that. And there are going to be times I think when, when you have to do get excited and focused about work, but making the time to do all the other stuff, I think is, has been something I've, I've tried to take away. Yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful because I think I think that's so important. I think it's easy to get caught up, isn't it, in modern society and everything that's going yeah. on, and yeah. for sure. Well, and, you know, it's the um, sorry, but it's, I, I just yeah. it's it's the social media thing, right? Um, yeah, you could call somebody, or yeah, you could walk down the hall and talk to a friend, or yeah, you could like make time to hang out with your kids. But Twitter's right there, and I can have twenty conversations right now, and they're all about me because the algorithms have made sure of that. Right. And I get a little that hit of dopamine or whatever it is right now. Um, but there's no long term investment there. That's not going to keep you happy for the day and the week. And, you know, that as it would to make the actual personal connection for the person down the hall or the person in your own house. You know, um, and I try to, to remind myself of that as somebody who's you know, tries to be on social media for work and for fun, but not have, let it be in control of me. I think that's kind of a. Uh, an allegory for all of life in this crazy world world that we built ourselves. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. And I think the thing is, you don't you, you're getting that dopamine hit from social media regularly, which is quite scary. But you're not kind of when you're with people like human contact, you're getting oxytocin, right? Which, yeah. from what I see, is like protecting your heart as well. It's cardiovascularly yeah. protective. Um, so it's interesting. So just, um, before you go, just a little bit more on the calories and mm. or the killer calories, as we should call them and really optimizing body composition. Cause I think, you know, I was polling members in my Facebook group recently, just like, what was the biggest health thing? And, mm -hmm. you know, it doesn't matter how many times you ask, right? Everybody cares about fat loss because yeah. it's, you know, whether you've got two kilos or 20 kilos, most people are not in their ideal physique 12 months mm -hmm. of the year. Um, and I guess the thing for me is thinking about if exercise isn't, it's a magic pill in terms of health, it seems, mm. but it isn't the determining factor in long-term weight loss. Yeah. However, you did, I think you do make the point that when you are in a good body composition, then exercise is very important in helping you stay there and not yeah. gain weight. Is that mm -hmm. right? That seems to be, yeah, lots of studies pointing that way, that once you've lost the weight and gotten to where you need to be, um, yes, yeah, staying there is easier if you're exercising. Mm. Whereas losing the weight is more a function of your nutrition. Yeah, I mean, I, lots of studies show that. Not just stuff out of my lab. My lab, I think, confirms that as well. But, um, but right, you know, diet's a much better tool for weight loss than exercise. Yeah, and for that, you've got to create a deficit. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, it really is about calories and all the tricks we have about this diet or that diet or time-restricted feeding or intermittent fasting. You know, you call it whatever you like. It's it's they all work the same way at, at the end of the day, which is you're you're eating fewer calories than you burn. Um, and you know, people say it doesn't feel that way though. I'm eating loads of calories on this new diet, and I, I still lose weight. I'm sure it feels that way, and that's wonderful, and I'm so happy for you, but it really is a calorie deficit. It has to be that that's the physics of it. Mm. Yeah. And so it's my, I mean, it's, it's like most things, isn't it? With chronic diseases, it's far easier to maintain your weight and not get fat in the first place. So you don't have to lose it and have the metabolic disadvantage of playing with it. Cause it, the problem with, I think with, with weight loss is that you, you then got to downgrade your calorie intake. Have you seen, you know, the whole fear and what seems to be the case with fad dieting anyway, is that you then lose muscle in addition to fat yeah. if you're not prioritizing protein. That's why I always say to people, if you're going to create this deficit, let's prioritize the protein so we can yeah. try to hang on to muscle, right? Yeah. 
Yeah. But then otherwise, when they come off that and they start to go back to a normal calorie intake, we see this weight regain quite significantly because now their metabolism is lower. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that's the hard part, isn't it, is that playing with that system. How much have you found in your research that the body will start to adjust? Because I know you were saying, I think you make the point, um, I don't know whether it was in the book itself or in a podcast I was listening to you on, about how your body gets used to what you're doing. It gets into a routine and knows that if, for example, you exercise on a Monday, Wednesday, Friday, your burn is going to be a bit higher. Um, how can people sort of really optimize things so that they are keeping their metabolism sort of stoked at its highest? Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, um, if you are going on a crash diet, then yeah, your metabolism can sort of be reduced by that. Your body will go into starvation mode is a way to think about it and, and reduce the expenditure on other stuff. And, and you're burning fewer calories than you were before you started. Um, so keeping your metabolism up throughout, uh, you know, a dieting um, effort is going to be about not going too crazy with the calorie deficit, you know, sort of losing the weight in at the, around the same pace as you gained it, right? You know, not not going too fast too soon. Um, beyond that, I mean, exercise definitely has a role to play. I don't think it's going to change how many calories you burn so much as, because uh, again, your body's going to adjust so that the energy benefit from exercising isn't in the total calories burned, it's in the way those calories are burned on exercise rather than on inflammation or something like that. But what exercise can do in a, in a dieting scenario is help you keep the muscle up and mm -hmm. keep your muscle mass up. That, that, that's, that can help there. Um, and so that'll keep calories burned from going lower because you'll maintain that muscle mass and muscle burns calories. So, um, so yeah, exercise, I'm not telling people not to exercise that ever. I'm never saying that, but, um, and you can have different sort of parts to play in a weight loss scenario or certainly in a weight maintenance scenario. Um, but it's, but it really is diet. That's going to be the big lever for changing your weight. Diet is king. And I think you also, I was reading an article where you were saying that, uh, it doesn't, your metabolism doesn't seem to change with age. So there's a, a slight misconception that you hit middle age and now you just can't burn the same calories you did in your twenties. That yeah, doesn't seem that, to play out. Yeah. I'm in my forties. And so I was surprised by the data. And so it's always fun when you are surprised by your own study. Um, uh, that means you're doing it right. That's how science should work. Um, but so we have this, this is a recent thing that's, uh, just came out last week. Actually, we had a big collaborative effort, international collaboration, a uh, bunch of labs across the, the globe, uh, that put their data together. So we ended up with 60, 6,400, 6,400 people in this data set from eight years old to in their nineties. And we were able to ask, um, how body size and fat percentage, right? How that affects energy expenditure and how on top of that, how age affects energy expenditure. So separately from body size, because of course, as, as kids grow up, they burn more calories just by being bigger, but mm -hmm. to separate out uh, effects of size from age. And so when you do that, what you see is that from about 20 to about 60 years old, um, there's no age effect on metabolism that we can detect. The, on the 20 on the calories you burn over 24 hours there's no age effect from about 20 to about 60. now again i'm in my middle age so it doesn't feel that way i feel like i've got a slower metabolism uh but that's not what's happening right and so what that means is that um when people are do tend to gain a bit of weight in their middle age or they do feel their bodies are different it must be other other factors it must be hormones that are changing which of course mm -hmm. we know they do you know testosterone for a male testosterone peaks in your 20s and slowly comes down throughout middle age. And so maybe what I'm feeling is that. Uh, women's reproductive hormones change too over the course of middle age and obviously with menopause as well. Uh, and so it could be that. It could be, you know, my stress levels are different now than they were when I was in my 20s. Um, I've got two little kids for one thing, so my stress levels are higher, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, you know, work requirements are different. My food environment's different. You know, the, what's in my fridge right now is different than what was in my fridge when I was 25, you know? Mm. Uh, and so I think all these things are, are contributing to uh, weight gain in your middle age and, and the way that your body feels different. Um, I don't really think there's no evidence of this metabolism because we've, we've checked that and it's not 
not changing. Okay, so isn't so? What you're saying is, it's not that you don't naturally gain weight at that age. It's just not your metabolism. So it could be hormones. Because I know, for example, when I was interviewing Dr. Stacy Sims, and we were talking about her research on women, mm-hmm. and particularly in that lead up to menopause, and the research that indicates that you know women's um, insulin sensitivity goes down, their baseline mm-hmm. inflammation tends to go up, their cortisol mm-hmm. goes up. So that would encourage weight gain, particularly that abdominal weight gain that we see in women. And maybe, I don't know what you think about this, but what I found is that actually at that age, women tend to just need a little bit less carbohydrates unless their activity levels are really up Hmm. um, because they're more vulnerable, because they're not controlling their blood sugar. Um, But I also think it's like you mentioned their stress. There's often a perfect storm that's taking place at that stage because they have got teenage children aging parents, they're probably in leadership positions if they've continued their careers through, so they have way more yeah. responsibility. And then you add the hormones in the mix. They're also a bit more sedentary. Yeah. It's it's a kind of a perfect storm, isn't it, for weight gain, really? Yeah, it is. It is. And, and we tend to take all of those changes and, you know, well, I, I, you know, I'm not letting that affect me. I'm powering through that, all that. That's fine, you know, but it's my, my, my dumb metabolism, you know, and you put, sort of chuck it in that black box. It, well, it's my metabolism. Um, I suspect that's what's going on um, more than, you know, because now we, again, we finally measured the metabolisms of 6,000 some people and we can say, nope, surprisingly enough, that's not it. So it must be everything else. Um, mm. And there's no, there's no shortage of, of, uh, of suspects, right? Uh, potential culprits here. Uh, but it, it's, to, to blame it on metabolism doesn't really help. And what's nice is, you know, on one hand, you're like, well, if it's not metabolism, what is it? And you say, well, we're not sure, but it could be these things. You say, well, what use is that? And the answer is, that's how science works, right? You you sort of keep on knocking down potential explanations until you get to the one that's it. And so this is an important step towards that. Um, if we want to understand our metabolisms and sort of, you know, I'm, I'm of the view that you can't change your metabolism much. Your body might change its metabolism in response to what you're doing in ways that are actually frustrating, like reducing your metabolism when you diet. So that's actually... Mm. less helpful um but i'm of the view that you can't actually push your metabolism around very much your body wants to stay on a particular trajectory i think this last set of data for six thousand some people kind of shows what that trajectory is it's the roadmap for your metabolism um and so you know we can either use that map as a tool or we can keep on you know trying to run up against the guardrails and try to change things but i don't think that's going to be particularly useful i think it'd be better to take the map and use it and say, okay, that's metabolism. Now let's layer on the other bits, hormone changes, stress changes, sleep changes, and try to affect those that we might have more control over. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's excellent advice. And do you find then when you talk about metabolism and a roadmap that some people, like we all know that person who's super lean and just stays effortlessly lean, they seem to be able to eat anything they want. Do some people naturally have a much faster metabolism than another person? Have you seen quite big differences in that? Sure. I mean, just like there's variation in height or variation Mm -hmm. in anything, right? There's variation in metabolism. People, some people naturally tend to burn a few more calories than others. Um, The, interestingly, it isn't, it doesn't always work that the people who you can identify as burning more calories than you'd expect are protected against obesity, where the people with a slow metabolism as measured in the lab are doomed to obesity. We don't really see that. What seems to be the case is that people who, who seem to be able to eat whatever they like, um, it could be that you're not watching them in the other parts of their day and they're not snacking and they're not, you know, so they're not actually eating a lot more than, than you um, or even the same amount as you, that, that they're feeling full on fewer calories. Uh, and that's how it's, they're they're managing to stay lean without trying. It could be that they just don't have the same reward response to food, right? And so they're not drawn to eat uh, as strongly as as other people are. I, I, the, I say that because when we look at the genetics of obesity, and this is work that's come out of the UK, actually, a lot of it in the UK biobank system, people have identified hundreds of genes where the variant the variations in those genes make you more or less likely to be obese. Um, All of those genes, well, I I should say well over 90% of those genes are active in your brain, right? Overeating, um, obesity, 
tends to be seems to be a, a brain regulation issue. How well, how full do you feel after a meal? How much are your is your hypothalamus pushing you to eat more by making you more hungry? Um, and so I suspect that people who, you know, either feel like they have a fast metabolism and don't, you know, don't have to seem to worry about weight gain. People who seem to have a slow metabolism do. I I suspect that could have as much to do with their reward and response to food and how hungry and full they feel after a meal um, than anything about their metabolism exactly. Mm. And also, I think when they've eaten hyperpalatable foods for any length of time and they've created kind of insulin resistance, you can then go on, can't you, to develop leptin resistance. So now you're not even aware that you're that full. Sure. Well, you know, I I think that's exactly right. And, and, you know, these things can spiral, right? I mean, I think Mm. you're absolutely right. And you were making the point about how it's easier to keep a healthy weight than it is to get to a healthy weight. Um, And I think it speaks to that as well. And I think this is why, you know, as a public health issue, first of all, we need to get the messaging on diet and exercise, right? They're two different tools for two different jobs. But secondly, I think as a public health issue, we need to really focus on kids, right? Because if you get into your late teenage years and you already are struggling with obesity, man, it's going to be hard to turn that around. And you're going to have an an adulthood spent perhaps struggling. Um, You know, whereas if you are able to get through your development at a healthy weight, then perhaps that puts you on an easier, easier road to, to keep to stay healthy through your middle age. So, you know, um, not that we should stop trying when we're in our middle age or anything like that, but I think we mm. should redouble our efforts on kids because I think that's really, really critical. I agree. And do you know where the science is on terms of how many fat cells you can actually develop because i seem i see read conflicting research on whether by the time you reach 18 you kind of you've developed your fat cells you can't get rid of them and now they're sort of there even if they even if you lose the weight they're sort of dormant they could be filled up quite easily then i see other bits of research that say actually the reason we're seeing so much prevalence of fatty liver is that now you know when we kind of run out of room we start generating more fat in the liver what's the answer on this uh, I, I think I'm reading the same literature you're reading. I don't see, um, I, I don't think this is resolved yet. Exactly. So this is, you know, pay attention to this space. Yeah. Um, I yeah. I, I think the, the development of metabolism from childhood into adolescence and, and early adulthood, the development of, of fat. Um, I think we need to spend more of our time. There's been so much work done on people in their middle-aged and older, because that's when heart disease develops. That, that's when type 2 diabetes historically has been developing. And so people, oh, we got to focus on that. And I understand that and don't disagree. But the seeds of all of those issues might be planted much earlier. And so I'd like to see a shift in our focus to, to, to be more on kids and adolescents for that reason. Mm, I think we I don't think have it exactly sorted out yet. Yeah, I think that would be super interesting, um, particularly as I know my, my father was misdiagnosed with a heart condition when I was a teenager. Mm. And so we were told to eat a low fat diet, which inevitably leads to higher carbohydrate, right? Yeah, higher sugar. Help, does it? And yeah. No, exactly. And what I found was then by my mid to late 20s, I was diagnosed with PCOS and insulin resistance but I didn't have weight gain. And my dad, you know, lots of family history of type 2 diabetes. I can see genetically when I've tested, there was a predisposition. But then by changing my diet, I had to have some surgery initially to resolve the PCOS. But following that, it's never returned because I keep my, like, blood sugar stable. um, And it makes such a transformational difference. And I agree with you. Like, how different could that have been had I had a different diet growing up, yeah. you know, maybe the outcome would have been different because I certainly changed it from my twenties yeah. on when I realized the impact. Yeah. Uh, and I think that would right. be super helpful for people. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show today. It's been so interesting. Please share your book, your research, your website, where can people find you? I know you're active. I think on Twitter, I tried to tag you the other day on Instagram, but I don't think you spend yeah, as much time Instagram there. as much. I try not no. to do, um, I, Twitter already takes up so much of my time. I don't spend much time on Instagram. Uh, yeah. Twitter's where to find me at Herman Ponser. Um, please check out the book. If this stuff is of interest to you, the book is called burn and you can get it wherever you get books at your local bookshop. And if they don't have it, you can go to Amazon or something like that. But, um, but check out the local guys first. And if you want to know what we're doing for research, uh, you can find us online here at Duke University. Um, and if you want to know more about the Hadza, the Hadza hunter-gatherer group that we work with a lot, uh, 
please check them out. It's, it's hadzafund.org, H-A-D-Z-A-F-U-N-D.org. And it's a, that's a charity that we've set up um, in partnership with the Hadza community to try to keep them a, a strong uh, a strong community going forward. Because like a lot of uh, traditional groups, they sort of are struggling uh, against, you know, various pressures from development. So, um, so yeah, so check them out too. And, and that, that's a good place to start anyhow. Amazing. I will link to all of that. I love what you're doing there. I'll link to all of that in the show notes. Um, and also I highly recommend the book. There's so many stories in it. It reads so well. You have me hooked from the very first opening chapter. It's a really, really fun read, um, as well as giving you lots of data and science so people can get their teeth into it. So I will link to that to burn and everything else we've spoken about today in the show notes over on my website. Thank you so much, Dr. Herman. It's been an absolute pleasure having you on. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. As always, all of the show notes will be over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast together with the transcript that you can download and the link to Dr. Herman's book, Burn, The Misunderstood Science of Metabolism and everything else relating to this week's episode. If you found this interesting like I did, it's another perspective on it, please share the podcast with someone. Um, it helps um, It helps them, it helps me, it helps to get the message out there and it's just truly wonderful really to be able to share my passion with as many people as I possibly can. So thanks again for listening and I will catch up with you next week. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.